today's the great disappointment. Uh, how to find Mr. and Mrs. Wright without being disappointed. And we found out that uh, one of the signs of the times, Jesus Christ said that um, during, before he comes back, it's going to be very much like the times of Sodom and Gomorrah and also like the days of Noah. And if we studied out the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, we find that what were the men doing during that time? You know, they were choosing whoever they wanted. They weren't consulting God. They weren't praying to God. They weren't searching the scriptures or trying to find out what God's will was. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And the Bible says that their minds became so wicked, their imaginations was wicked continually, that God eventually just destroyed the earth. Friends, we are getting to that time where it's coming like Noah's days, like Sodom and Gomorrah, where men and women are doing what they want outside of the will of God. Well, this morning we took a look at how is it that we could go through life and, and, fear, and finding that Mr. and Mrs. Wright without being disappointed. And we learned some principles. Uh, one of the principles that we learned was if you don't want to be disappointed in finding Mr. and Mrs. Wright, you need to first be married to Jesus. Can you say amen to that? First be married to Jesus. He is the one. The Bible says that in Isaiah 54 that He is our maker. Our maker is our husband. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 3 that we are married unto Him. So if we want to go through life finding the right person, first find the only righteous person, that's Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. So step number one, be married to Jesus. Have an intimate, powerful, real relationship with God. Number two, Find out what God's calling is for your life. We saw that God had God made Adam to tend the garden, to take care of the garden. That was his purpose. That was his mission. That is what God called Adam to do. So before Adam had a wife, before Adam had someone in his life, he had, a, he had God, he was alone with God, and he had a mission in life. The Bible also said that God educated him. He said not to eat of a certain tree that's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He educated him on how to do his work successfully. Um, oftentimes that's the steps for us. We need to first be married to Jesus. Secondly, ask God, what is that calling that you have for my life? Be educated for that calling. And then, what happened? Eve came along. Now, who brought, did Adam find Eve or was Eve brought to Adam? Now, did Adam, was Adam looking? Ah, oh, was he looking? Oh, got the mixed multitude in here. Well, the Bible says in Genesis that Adam was what? He knew that he was not, didn't have what? Help me. He knew that everyone else had a partner except what? Me. So obviously Adam was what? Looking. But was he a depressed single? He was not a depressed single. He had God. The, only, the Bible says in Genesis 2 that God said it is not good for man to be alone. Adam didn't say, man, it's not good that I'm alone. God said that. And as a result, God brought Eve to Adam. And I liked uh, the corny little thing that I brought into this sermon this morning was, well, what, what was Eve made out of? She was made out of the what? Rib. The ribs protect what, everybody? The heart and the lungs. The lungs, okay. So I like to say that when Adam saw Eve, she took his breath away. She was just amazing. He was like, wow, yes, wonderful. And they lived a life pretty good life as long as they kept in the will of God, but they separated uh, from the will of God and they fell. But that's not our story. Our story is how is it that we could, we could find our match, just not our mate, our match. And that is by following those three or four points and God will bring us to the right person. Well, tonight's message 
is entitled Match Made in Heaven. Match Made where? Match Made in Heaven. Um, and the subtitle, I guess, is Prophesy What Again. Match Made in Heaven. If you can please bow your heads for another word of prayer. My Father which is in heaven, I pray from my heart that you may please speak. Father, I am thankful for the opportunity of sharing your word. It's so sweet to be part of this last generation, this last movement. It's so nice to know that, Father, we can see you come in the clouds of glory very soon. And Father, I pray that you may prepare us for what is coming. I think a lot of us um, are not, I think all of us here are not really ready for what is coming. So please, Father, prepare me, prepare my friends. Lord, 171 years ago, you entered the most holy place and have been interceding for our behalf. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of what you've been doing and how you live to intercede for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine it's 1844 and um, you are part of the Advent movement. I mean, you are believing with all your heart that Jesus Christ is coming. Maybe it's October or beginning of October and you've understood the, 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 uh, Daniel chapter 8 verse 14 as Jesus Christ is going to come on October 22. And you are just thoroughly excited, thoroughly happy. You are selling everything you have. You're selling your homes. You're quitting your jobs. You are going up to the mountains. You want to get the best view of seeing, of seeing Christ come. And all your children are there. I remember, I love Adventist history. And I remember there was a pioneer that was baptizing people. It was in the winter time. And it was cold. It was, it, was, it was freezing. And he was baptizing people, baptizing people. Well, he ended up getting sick and he ended up dying. And his family, instead of growing, getting, into, getting into a depressed state, recognizing my husband's dead, my dad's dead, they were all happy in knowing that in just a few days, they were going to see their dad again. I want you to imagine that it's the day you're living in. You sold everything. You're thoroughly convicted that Jesus Christ is coming perhaps in days. And then October 22 comes around. And you are excited. You're a bit nervous. You've, you've searched your heart. You've been confessing your sins. You feel like you're right with God. And there you are on top of the mountain. And you're just there right before the, 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 the sun comes up. And you're just waiting there. And all of a sudden the sun comes up. And you're just imagining that Jesus Christ is going to come with all the legions and thousands of angels. Millions of angels. Billions of angels. And you're just there waiting and excited. And all of a sudden 12 o'clock comes around. And it's getting hotter. And you're just wondering, well, maybe he's going to come at noontime. You're getting a little bit hungry, but you're saying, hey, I've been hungry before. Jesus Christ is going to come. And you're just waiting there. And all of a sudden, fast forward, it's 11.59. It's dark. The darkest times of the night. And you're just sitting there and you're getting tired, you're getting weary, you're very doubtful. And all of a sudden, 12 o'clock comes around and 12.01 and, and Jesus did not return. How would you feel, friends? How would you feel? Terrible. All right. Somebody would feel terrible. How about you guys? How would you feel? Discouraged. Discouraged, depressed. Yes, you would feel bad. Disappointed. Yes, you will. You would feel disappointed. You just sold everything you've had. You just, you just, you just uh, quit your jobs. You just did everything to spreading the gospel. Friends, I want to let you know that we are at the brink of doing the same thing. If you really believe Jesus Christ is coming, there's going to be a time where you cannot buy or sell. There's going to be a time where you are going to be in the mountains. There is going to be a time where you feel like you're all by yourself. I want to 
give you a clue what this message is all about, I want to lay this at you right now from the very beginning. Oftentimes, our greatest disappointments in life can turn into our greatest appointments with God. Our greatest disappointments in life can be turned into our greatest appointments with God. I want to go with you to Bible prophecy about this in Daniel chapter, or Revelation chapter 10 really quickly. Turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Bring out some points there. And I'm going to share with you some things that have been happening. Um, not necessarily about the Pope and all that stuff, although that's very interesting. But just around the area as I travel and as I preach at different churches. Turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. When you're there to me here, hearty, happy, awake. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, I have to say that sometimes I just find it funny. People will say amen and they don't even have their Bibles. I find that amazing. I just, just incredible. Well, maybe you have it all memorized and that will be amazing. But if you don't have a Bible, share with someone. You have an iPad, iPhone, share with someone. I want you to see this for yourself. As we entertain the subject of match made in heaven. Are we there in Revelation 10, amen? amen. The Bible says this. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and he has feet, and he has feet, and his feet was as pillars of fire. So this is a description of who? Many people think, Bible expositors, theologians believe that this is Jesus. Alan White says that this is a personage of Jesus. This looks like it's a representative of Jesus. I mean, if you study out the characteristics of Revelation chapter 1, where it's describing Jesus, it looks very similar. So let's just say this is the personage of Jesus. Notice this. The Bible says in verse 2, and he had in his hand a what kind of book? A what, everybody? A little book. And this little book is what? It is open. What is it, everybody? It's open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. So who has this little book? Jesus, right? Jesus has this little book, and this little book is what, everybody? It's open. So who's holding this book? Jesus. Representative of Jesus, the personage of Jesus. Jesus, okay. Keep reading. And he cried with what kind of a voice? A loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he cried, seven thunders utter their what? Utter their voices. So here's this figure of Jesus, this personage of Jesus, and, and he speaks, and it sounds like a what, everybody? Sounds like a what? Lion. And all of a sudden, as you hear this roar, this loudness, all of a sudden you hear seven what? Thunders uttering their voices. How many of you have ever heard thunder before? Now, I mean not Southern California thunder. I mean like Florida, like Georgia, like Tennessee, like the East Coast thunder, South thunder. Have any of you heard that? It's a little bit different. I remember when I went to school in Arkansas, I remember the first time uh, I was sleeping in the dorm and it happened to be just a little trailer. And I remember the first time I was just barely getting to sleep. There was a storm coming and all of a sudden thunder started going off or, you know, thunder started going through the sky. And literally, friends, the, the, I felt like the trailer was moving. And I, and I was like, I didn't know there was earthquakes out here in Arkansas. And there were just light penetrating. It was just moving. It was, it was intense. Well, here the Bible says seven thunders are uttering their voices. So it's even louder. The Bible says in verse 4, And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, 
uh, seal up those things which the seven thunders had uttered and do not what? Write them. So you have, you have the personage of Jesus and he's, and he's speaking. He's saying something. And then all of a sudden these seven thunders utter their voices. Now these seven thunders have a message. They have a what everybody? Message. Because the, uh, uh, John wanted to write them down. But a voice comes down from heaven and says what? Come on, what does it say? Do not what? Do not write them. Now, what is the seven thunders? Anyone know what the seven thunders are? Seven thunders. Alan White says, I'll just read it to you so you won't think I'm making it up. She says this, powerful. It's found in First Manuscript Releases, page 99. Talking about the seven thunders, she says, The special light given to John was expressed in the seven thunders was a delineation of events which would transpire under the first and second angel's message. It was not best for the people to know these things, for their faith must necessarily be what? Tested. So what was the seven thunders, seven thunders uttering? What was going to be happening during the proclamation of the first and second angel's message leading up to the great disappointment? So it was a message that was going to describe what the Advent people were going to go through. The great disappointment and all the suffering and, 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 and trials that they were going to go to. God says, or a voice from heaven says, do not write it. I don't want them to know. They need to be tested. Oftentimes, friends, the reason why disappointments are dis so discouraging and disappointing is because we don't know what's going on. We can't figure it out. We're like, why is this happening? Why is this going on? For example, in 2012, my best friend died of leukemia. His name, is, his name was Derek Lamberti for seven years. For seven years, he was fighting leukemia. And I remember I got a phone call one day, and his mother was saying, Hey, David, Derek is dying. And I remember I asked God, why is this happening? He is 22 years old, 23 years old. He's got so many more years to live. He's such a good person. Why is this happening? And at first, I heard nothing. I heard silence. There was nothing that was happening. God wasn't saying anything. And then eventually, God started sharing with me precious promises, such as Psalms 116, where it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And then in Proverbs chapter 14, it says, For the righteous have hope in their death. And then the Bible says in Isaiah 57, in verse 1, it says, That the righteous man perisheth, and no man lay it to heart. For the Lord is delivering him from the evil to come. I started recognizing that God may perhaps have laid down my, my friend to rest at the climax of his spiritual life because he knew that what, the evil that was coming, maybe he couldn't bear it. So he was laying him down to rest because in his rest, he will have hope again. But at that time, friends, I was clueless. I was in the darkness. I had no idea. There was no voice from heaven. It was silence about what was happening. And oftentimes, that's why events, disappointing times are so disappointing because there's no answer. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. And he swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the, sea and the things which are therein, that there shall be time, no what? There shall be time, no what, everybody? This time no longer is an indication of time prophecy. Indication of time what, everybody? 
This means that after, 20, after the 2300 day prophecy, there is no other time prophecy passing that. No other thing. So people talk about the 2520, the longest time prophecy, friends. No, I don't think so. That, the 2300 days is the longest Bible time prophecy. Somebody out there say amen. amen. All right, so this was the time no longer, the 2300 days. No other prophecy that was going to go through that in respect to time. Verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seven angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go, take the what book? Come on, speak to me, friends. Take the what? Take the little book, which is what? Open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make your belly bitter, but in your mouth it shall be sweet as what, everybody? Sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, I ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Stop right there. Let's dissect this really quick. This angel is the one that's doing what? Holding this little what? Little book. And this little book, the Bible describes as what? Open. That means to indicate that this little book used to be what? Close. Now you guys probably study the Bible. What is this little book? What is this little book that was closed? Huh? I hear Daniel 12. Let's go there. Daniel chapter 12. Keep your finger in Revelation 11 or 10. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel the 12th chapter. As we continue on the topic of match made in heaven, prophesy what again? Daniel chapter 12. What was this little book that was closed? Look at verse 4. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. When you're there, let me hear an amen. amen. All right. Let me hear a hearty, happy, awake amen. amen. All right. That's a little better. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. The Bible says, But you, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be what, everybody? Increase. Notice verse 8. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the what? End. Okay, notice this very carefully, friends. Daniel, is it a big book or a little book? Comparatively, in the Bible. It's a little book. Now, at the end of this book, God tells Daniel to do what with it? Come on, speak to me. What does he say? Seal it up. Close it up until when? The time of the end. Now, let's study a little bit deeper. What particularly in the book of Daniel was sealed until the time of the end? What was it particularly in the book of Daniel that he had no idea about? Turn to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Notice verse 14. The Bible says in Daniel verse 8, verse 14, He said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision, and saw for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the what, everybody? The vision, notice. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. I fell upon my face, but he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the what? 
So there's this vision in Daniel chapter 8, verse, or Daniel chapter 8, that Daniel does not what? Understand. And the angel Gabriel says, hey, don't worry, you'll understand it when? Ah, oh, we're sleeping. You're powerful. Are you guys ready? Look, it's going to get good, so just put your thinking caps on. It's going to get powerful. We're going for a ride here. There's something in Daniel chapter 8 that he doesn't understand. The angel Gabriel says, don't worry, you're going to understand it at the time of the what? Time of the end. What is it? What is it that Daniel doesn't understand? Look at the last verses of that chapter. The Bible says in verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true, wherefore shun up the vision, for it shall be for many what? Day. So this vision has to do with time, evening and morning in creation. A day, remember? The evening and the morning was the first day. The evening and the morning was the second day. So what vision do we have in Daniel chapter 8 that deals with time? That deals with time. The only thing in Daniel chapter 8 that deals with time is the 2300-day prophecy found in verse 14. Now the Bible says in verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted. I was six certain days. Afterward, I rose up and, and did the king's business. And I was astonished, astonished at the vision, but none under what understood it. So here's Daniel. And there's a vision that he does not understand. And particularly, it's the 2300 what? Days. And the Bible says, though, that when, when is understanding going to come to it? When are they finally going to understand it? At the time of the what, everybody? At the time of the end. Question is now, when is the time of the end? When is the time of the end? I mean, this is fascinating because at that time, at the time of the end or shortly after, understanding about the book of Daniel, but particularly about the 2300 days is going to be revealed. It's going to be unsealed. It's going to be opened in the minds of the people. When was the time of the end? 1798. How can you prove it? Turn to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12 again. Daniel chapter 12 again. In verse 4, Daniel is told to seal up the book. Shut it up. Verse 9, he's told to seal it up. Shut it up. But in between that verse, those verses, it talks about when this was going to be open. The Bible says in verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. It shall be for what, everybody? Time, times, and half a time. What in the world is that? Time, times, and half a time. Man, you probably thought, man, I didn't come here to do math. I'm done with school. <laughs> School's over, right? What is this time, time, and half a time? I want to show you. Turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Really quick. I'm getting somewhere. Just hold on. We're just laying down the foundation. We're about done with this. The Bible says in Revelation, what chapter? 12. Is this the context of the woman fleeing into the wilderness, the church, during the dark ages? But notice verse 14. You'll see this. And so the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into a place where she is nourished for a time, times, and what? Half a time from the face of the who? So here in, 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 in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about this woman, the church, fleeing into the wilderness. She's hiding from the serpent, the devil, for how long? Time, time. There's that same word. But what does it mean? 
The Bible tells us what it means in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand three two hundred and three score days. That's 1260 days in Bible prophecy, days for a year. So that's 1260 what everybody? Years. Oh, years. When did that happen? In 538 BC, AD, excuse me, 538 AD, the pagan Rome became papal Rome, became the papacy. God power, their seed and authority. And for 1260 years, they were trying to destroy this church in the wilderness, this woman. Now that 1260 years ends in 17 when? 98. That is when the time of the end Began. Let me ask you Adventists a question. After 1798, did the understanding of the 2300 day prophecy begin to be understood? No? Some of you are just like, huh? After 1798, did anyone think about anything about the 2300 days at all? Yeah, shoot out some names for me. William Miller, all right, William Miller in 1831, before that he started studying the book of Daniel, he got to it verse by verse, and he figured out that the 2300 days, it was this cleansing of the, of the sanctuary he thought it was the earth, and he got some calculations and he figured it out that in 1843 Jesus Christ was going to come, he didn't come in 1843, they started studying some more, 1844 they thought it was, because of the mix up between the year zero, they thought you count zero as a year and you don't, it goes from one to one. Now watch this. You guys just went through a whole marathon here. Yes? I could tell. Some of you are sweating. Like me. I'm just kidding. This is where it gets super good. Are you guys ready? Yes. Come on. Are you guys ready? Yes. In Revelation chapter 10, who gives Daniel this book to eat? Speak to me. The Bible says that he heard a voice saying, go get the little book from that personage of Jesus. And in verse 9, I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up, and it shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was what? Bitter. This is the 1844 experience. It was a sweet message to give that Jesus Christ was coming, but he didn't come, so it became a what? Bitter experience. Did that angel ever leave them? Did that angel give him the book, give them the book, and just kind of hide from them, leave them? Did he allow them to go through this bittersweet experience all by themselves? No. Because in the next verse, you have that angel speaking again. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again before many people, nations, tongues, and what, everybody? So this angel is right there as they're going through the great disappointment. Amen. I want to share with you something, friends. In the darkest times of your life, I want to let you know that Jesus is still there. I want to let you know that even though you have to go through bitter and sweet experiences, Jesus Christ is there to sustain you. In fact, he gives the remedy of this bittersweet experience. He says, get up and continue to prophesy again. 
Now, this is something that boggled my mind. As I was studying this out, many people believe that Revelation chapter 10 ends right there. In verse 11. But does it really? Notice the next verse of the next chapter. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Notice, this chapter didn't even end. Because the first word of the next chapter says, and. What does that mean? It is connection with what was just said. Now, what is being told in Revelation 11 verse 1? Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and the people. What is that talking about? It is talking about the very thing that they did not understand that led into that great disappointment. If we would just have read or studied the Bible, God tells them, prophesy again. What was it that they were prophesying? Well, they were prophesying the first and second angel's message. He says, keep preaching it. Go back and keep preaching it. But you must do it in connection with the next verse. And the next verse talks about what? The sanctuary. I want to share with you something. The sanctuary is being attacked today. Let me share with you a story. I travel a lot. I've been to India and other places, so you won't have no, no idea where I'm saying this. But I remember I was talking to a leader, the leader's wife of the church. Her husband was the leader of the church. And I remember she told me, David, I got to tell you something. Oh, by the way, before I was going to go preach at the man's church, he said, do not preach about the 2300 days nor of the heavenly sanctuary. Don't preach that here. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to preach what Adventists believe in. It's found in the Bible. I'm going to preach it. Well, I preached it. And shortly after that, the leader's wife came up to me and said something that was absolutely startling. She said, David, I stay at home. I work from home. And one day as I was at home by myself, it was a two-story house. I was in the bottom, first floor. I heard some banging. I heard some what, everybody? Banging upstairs. So my, my, I knew I was home alone, so I thought, what in the world is that? So I went up there, and I, and I, I was just trying to hear, and it was coming in my bed, from my bedroom. And I went in my bedroom. I looked around. Nothing there. And David, I heard this banging every single day. Until I decided one day that I'm going to search everything. I'm going to, what is that banging? Where is it coming from? And finally this woman had enough courage. She started searching all over the house, upstairs. And she gets into this room upstairs, in her bedroom, in the closet, underneath the clothes. Underneath clothes, there was a box. There was a what, everybody? There was a box. And in that box, she found tapes. She found what, everybody? Tapes. She picked up the tape. And it was by Desmond Ford. She picked up the other tape, Desmond Ford. Other tape, Desmond Ford. Other tape, Desmond, Desmond. If you don't know who Desmond Ford is, he's been one of the great men, he's still alive, I believe, in the early 80s, that taught that the 2300 days is not biblical. 1844 is not biblical. There's no heavenly sanctuary. That's not biblical. Alan White is not necessarily even inspired. She's not necessarily even a prophet, the messenger of the Lord. That's done away with. He has done more to tear down the doctrine of this heavenly sanctuary than any man that I know. 
And as soon as she saw these tapes, you know what she did with them? Anybody want to guess? She destroyed it. And never after that, she heard any banging from upstairs. I share that story not to just be uh, uh, sensational or anything like that, but I want to let you know that the devil is not wanting us to understand something about the heavenly sanctuary. There is something about the heavenly sanctuary that God, the devil, doesn't want us to know about. Now, why? Now, in Revelation chapter 11, the Bible says, And there was given me a reed like unto wrong, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and them that worship. Now, what are they supposed to do with this, 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 this sanctuary, this temple? What are they supposed to do with this altar? What are they supposed to do with the people in there? What are they supposed to do, everybody? They're supposed to measure. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to measure something? In, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Whatever you measure someone, you will be measured by. Measuring is a form of judgment. It's a form of what, everybody? Judgment. So when it's talking about measuring the temple, measuring the altar, measuring them that worship, what is it saying? Judge the temple. Judge the altar. Judge the people. Where in the Bible do you ever find judgment taking place? With the sanctuary, the altar, and people. There's only one place. Where you find judgment taking place with all three of those things. Anyone want to take a guess? In Leviticus 16, let's turn there. Leviticus 16. Now, anybody know what Leviticus 16 talks about? Anybody? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. The investigative judgment. Or, excuse me, Day of Atonement. And Leviticus chapter 16, notice verse 33. Notice what's here. And he shall make an atonement for the what? Holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. What's happening here, friends? It is the day of judgment, day of atonement. The sanctuary is being cleansed. The people are being judged. The altar is being judged. It's being measured. So right here, Revelation 11 verse 1 is directly talking about the day of of atonement. Talking about what, everybody? Okay. So how does that fit with the sweet and bitter experience? Well, friends, it was the very thing they needed to get out of that great disappointment. Understanding that the sanctuary is not talking about the earth, but it's talking about what? Heaven. That now what's being judged? I am. The altar, the temple, those things are being judged. Why is the sanctuary so important? I'm going to close with this last verse. How many of you have ever been in a long-distance relationship? Anybody? couple? Long-distance relationship? Was it rough? Amen. <laughs> I was in a long-distance relationship with Abby. We've been married for two months. Amen? All right. All right. Yeah, and, and we were in a long distance relationship for about a year and a half. Pretty long time. We ended up uh, being in a relationship for two years until we got married. But a year and a half. And it was difficult. 
But there is two things that you must know in order to make your long-distance relationship successful. There's two things that I have found that you need to know in order to make your long-distance relationship successful. Can anyone name one or two of those? Or maybe what you think it is. Communication. All right, communication. That's important. You got to communicate, right? What else? Skype. Skype. All right, communication. (laughs) All right. In order to make a long-distance relationship work out, all right, you need to communicate. What else? What? Trust? Okay, here's two things. Here's two things that I have found. First thing, if you want to make a long-distance relationship work, you got to know where that person's at. Yeah? Is that important? got to know where it's at. Where's she at? And you got to know what she is doing. In order to make a long-distance relationship feel like it's close, you got to know where that person's at, and you got to know what that person is doing. <coughs> you know what makes this long-distance relationship between us and God work? In Hebrews chapter 16, or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it lets us know that He's entered into the veil, yes. and that He is our high priest. Friends, why is the heavenly sanctuary message so important? Because it brings us into the presence of God. It allows us to know what God is doing and where He is at. Amen? Amen. I want to let you know something, friends. That oftentimes our greatest disappointments in life can be our greatest appointments with God. Those Avon people that went through the great disappointment were the cl- one of the closest people, one of the closest groups of people who have ever been in touch with God, because they went through that great disappointment. How many of you have ever heard of these names, David and Sphia Flood? Anyone heard of David and Sphia Flood? Not one person. David and Sophia Flood were missionaries. Um, they were, where were they from? Sweden. David and Sophia Flood were from Sweden. And they decided that they were going to go out to Africa, to the Congo, to Zaire, to do mission work. As soon as they got to the mission station in Africa, in Zaire, or near, uh, excuse me, in Africa to the mission station, they met another couple um, by the name of the Ericsons that were from Sweden, that were going to go do mission work in Africa. It's always sweet doing work with people. And I tell you, they, they met up and they were like, okay, where are we going to go? What are you going to do? Let's go to, the, let's go to the Congo. Let's go deep into Africa. Let's go deep into reaching out to these people about Jesus. And so they went. They went to this place in the Congo. Now it's Zaire. And as they went there, friends, they, met these, they, they came up to this tribe and they became so discouraged because the chief says, you don't belong here. We don't want you talking about your God and and getting our God angry with your God. I'm sorry, you cannot dwell here. You can live up in the hill. You can build your mud huts, do whatever, but you cannot come into our tribe. So right away, David and Sophia Flood and the Ericsons were very much discouraged. Well, guess what happened? The chief did allow one little boy. One little what, everybody? One little boy to go and give them milk and eggs And if they wanted to buy something, he would bring it once a week. So once a week, David and Svea more particularly, Svea Flood, 
would minister to this kid about Jesus. Talk to Jesus about him. Well, friends, guess what happened? Eventually, the Ericsons got, became so discouraged. They were the only person they were seeing is this kid once a week, and that's it. So they decided, you know what, we're going to go back to, uh, we're going to go back to the, the, the mission station. We're going to stay there. We're going to figure out where else to go because we cannot handle this place. So they went back to the mission station. And while David and Sphia Flood decided, hey, we're going to stay here. So David and Sphia Flood decided to stay there. When all of a sudden, malaria broke out. And Sphia got it. And she got it while she was pregnant. And 16 days after she gave birth to Anna, she died. So here's David Flood alone with this baby in a tribe where they're not allowed to talk about Jesus. And they just see a kid once a week. So David, so utterly discouraged and so utterly mad and angry, went back to the mission station. He gave little Anna, his little baby, he gave it to the Ericsons who were still there and said, listen, I am angry with God. God took everything away from me. I'm so discouraged. I hate God. I have nothing to take care of this baby. You guys take care of it. I'm out of here. So he gave the Ericsons this little baby Anna, and he went back to Sweden. The Ericsons, after a couple of weeks, got an unknown disease and died. At that time, though, there was an American family, American missionaries, that came into that mission station in Africa who was able to take Anna and, and basically adopt her. Eventually, after a number of years, they decided to come back to America, the United States, where they were going to raise up Anna, little Anna, and they did. Now, Anna, she grew up, she went to a Bible college. That's where she met her husband. She married her husband. They moved out to, I believe, Portland. And in Portland, her, her husband's teaching at a Bible college there. And in Portland, friends, one day Anna receives a magazine, a ma random magazine in Swedish in her mailbox. She doesn't know the language. But she's looking through the magazine, and all of a sudden, she's looking through it, she sees a picture, and in the picture, there's a grave, and on the grave, it has the name Svea Flood. And she knew that that was my biological mother. <coughs> so she right away went to that Bible college, and she tried to find someone that could translate in Swedish, translate Swedish, Swedish. She did find someone. The guy was able to translate that the mother died... But she witnessed to one young man, one little boy. That little boy, in this article it said, this little boy grew up, became a teacher, started his own school, and what he did in that school, he taught everyone about Jesus. Every single student became converted. Every single student went back home and told their parents about Jesus, and those parents taught the tribe leader, the chief, about Jesus. That one tribe that rejected David and Sphia Flood about sharing Jesus became Christian. And that article said that 600 people in that village were Christians. Well, she was thrilled. Little Anna was thrilled. She was like, my mom did that. That's amazing. And she thought about her biological father. 
And she told her husband, one day I would like to go to Sweden and I would like to find my father. I would like to see him so I could tell them about this story. So on their 25th year anniversary, they went back, to, they went to Sweden, searched for their dad. And guess what, friends? They found him. He had remarried. He had four children. And Anna found the house. She entered the house, exp- expressed who, they, who she was, and the kids knew who she was. They said, yes, my father would tell us about you. And he told it, he would grieve, he would say that he left you out there, he didn't want to do it, but he had nothing else to support you. And she says, well, I'm alive, I'm here. Is dad still alive? And she says, yes, dad is very ill, he's very sick, he became a drunkard years ago, and he's very ill. And he's in the room, you can see him right now, but I have one thing to tell you. Do not talk about God with him. Do not mention the name of God. So Anna walks into the room and she says, Papa. The man turns around and she says, it's Anna. And right away tears started coming down his face. He couldn't believe it. He says, Anna, is this you? Is this you? He says, yes, Papa, this is me. It's Anna. She explained the story. Tears started streaming down his face saying, I never wanted to do that. I had no choice. I had nothing. I had nothing. And she said, Papa, don't worry. God took care of me. And as soon as she mentioned God, his face turned red. He got angry. He says, don't ever say that name. God ruined my life. He took everything away. My whole life mission, my whole life goals was thwarted, was failure. I lost my wife. I lost you. I did not win, save one person to Jesus. My whole life was worthless when I had God in it. She got that article out. Put it in his hands and say, Papa, won't you read this? He read the article. Tears started streaming down his face. On his bedside, right then and there, he invited Christ back into his life. A couple weeks after this, friends, he died. The story doesn't end there. There was a conference going on in England. Her and her husband went to that conference. And in that conference, they were hearing mission reports. And in these mission reports, they saw a middle-aged man go up to the front. And he talked about how in in the country of Zaire, there's 110,000 people who have accepted Christ. And Anna's sitting there, recognizing the country of Zaire. I wonder who that man is. So she goes after, after the presentation is all over, she goes after that young man and says, hey, do you happen to know whose Via Flood is? And that young man said, I am that little boy who your mom witnessed to, who every single day when I went to there, once a week. Your mom is the most famous lady most famous religious lady in our country. You need to come. So she arranged some things. She worked it out. She flew over to Africa. As soon as she stepped there, got into that country, into that village, into that town, 110,000 people are now converted. She was treated like a queen. I want to let you know something, friends. Serving Jesus is not easy. 
And oftentimes, friends, you are going to feel discouraged. You're going to feel disappointed. But remember, God has not left you in those disappointing times. It's oftentimes during the great disappointments that it's our great disappointments with God. I want to guarantee you something, friends. If you make it this side, if you, if you be faithful to the very end, when you get to heaven, you will be treated like royalty. How many of you today are discouraged? Maybe from things that are happening without the inside the church or from without of the church and you feel something maybe right now you feel so alone you feel so sad you feel so like giving up maybe things are happening outside the church maybe things are happening inside the church and it just feels all dark all around you and you may feel so discouraged friends i want to let you know don't let this time pass without recognizing that this can be your greatest appointment you'll ever have with god that he has not left you He's right there by your side. Who here wants to say, Father, I am going through a discouraging, disappointing time. But I'm not going to keep my eyes fixed on the problem. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on where you're at. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on what you're doing. And I know that by God's grace, you're going to get me through it. Who here wants to say, Father, help me. I am going through a discouraging time, disappointing time right now in my life. And I need you. Help me to keep my eyes focused on you. If that's you, I want you to stand up right now and say, God, Help me to refocus my eyes, refocus my mind on what you're doing for me today. I don't know what it is that's discouraging you. I don't know what's disappointing you, but our Advent church had gone through it, amen? amen? Because they found where Jesus is at. Friends, we as a people, we know where he's at. Let's keep our eyes focused on where he's at, what he's doing. And I guarantee you, he will get you through it. Let's pray. My Father, which is in heaven, 171 years ago, your son did something so utterly amazing that most people who didn't study the Bible missed out, were confused, were bewildered. But Father, you have given us great light today on where you're at and what your son is doing. So that, Father, if we ever feel like some, something distant, if we ever feel distant from you, if we ever feel like so discouraged and disappointed, if we ever feel like giving up, Father, one quick glance, one quick text, one quick remembrance of where you're at, what you're doing, can get us out of that great disappointment and give us a great appointment that we'll never forget. Amen. My Father, we have, we, the Bible says that our work is not in vain. Father, I don't know what's discouraging my friends here today, but I do know what got our Advent people out of that great dis disappointment. And that was looking at where you're at. Father, we are coming up to a time where the word disappointment is going to be something. We're going to be going through something that the word disappointment can't even describe. But I pray, Father, that we will train our minds here and now to keep our minds focused on where you're at and what you're doing so that we can get through it. This is my humble prayer that I ask 
In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.